0: On the wall of the Special Forces Memorial Court at Fort Bragg, the words of the prophet Isaiah are etched in stone. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Sugar answered that call. Today we inscribe their lives and their deeds in the distinguished and valorous history of this country's men and women in uniform. We pray that God will embrace their souls and may their service and sacrifice inspire generations to come. Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Shugart were real American heroes. During the military operation in Mogadishu on October 3rd, two American helicopters were down by hostile fire. Although United States Army Rangers established a defensive perimeter around the first down helicopter, they could not reach the second one quickly by land. In the wreckage of this helicopter lay four injured Army crewmen. Another helicopter, with Sergeants Gordon and Sugard on board, was dispatched to provide cover from above. But they came under withering fire, and the two sergeants instinctively understood that if the down crew was to stand a chance of survival, someone would have to get them on the ground. Immediately, Sergeants Gordon and Sugart volunteered to go. They were told, no, it's too dangerous. They volunteered again. Again, they were told, no. They volunteered a third time, and permission finally was granted. Sergeants Gordon and Shugart knew their own chances of survival were extremely bleak. The pilot of their helicopter said that anyone in their right mind would never have gone in. But they insisted on it because they were comrades in danger, because they believed passionately in the creed that says, I will not fail those with whom I serve. And so they asked their pilot to hover just above the ground and they jumped into the ferocious firefight. The citations that will be read shortly describe the extraordinary courage that Sergeants Gordon and Shugart demonstrated in the battle that followed. Gary Gordon and Randall Shugart died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. They risked their lives without hesitation. They gave their lives to save others. Their actions were clearly above and beyond the call of duty. Today, on behalf of the United States Congress, I award them both the Medal of Honor.
1: By direction of the President, authorized by Act of Congress, March 3rd, 1863, the Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty is awarded in the name of Congress to Master Sergeant Gary I. Gordon, the United States Army. Master Sergeant Gary I. Gordon, United States Army distinguished himself by actions above and beyond the call of duty on 3 October 1993 while serving as sniper team member, United States Army Special Operations Command with Task Force Ranger in Mogadishu, Somalia. Master Sergeant Gordon's sniper team provided precision fires from the lead helicopter during an assault and at two helicopter crash sites while subjected to intense automatic weapons and rocket-propelled grenade fires. When Master Sergeant Gordon learned that ground forces were not immediately available to secure the second crash site, he and another sniper unhesitatingly volunteered to be inserted to protect the four critically wounded personnel, despite being well aware of the growing number of enemy personnel closing in on the site. After his third request to be inserted, Master Sergeant Gordon received permission to perform his volunteer mission. When debris and enemy ground fires at the site caused him to abort the first attempt, Master Sergeant Gordon was inserted 100 meters south of the crash site. Equipped with only his sniper rifle and a pistol, Master Sergeant Gordon and his fellow sniper, while under intense small arms fire from the enemy, fought their way through a dense maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew members. Master Sergeant Gordon immediately pulled the pilot and the other crew members from the aircraft, establishing a perimeter which placed him and his fellow sniper in the most vulnerable position. Master Sergeant Gordon used his long-range rifle and sidearm to kill an undetermined number of attackers until he depleted his ammunition. Master Sergeant Gordon then went back to the wreckage, recovering some of the crew's weapons and ammunition. Despite the fact that he was critically low on ammunition, he provided some of it to the day's pilot, and then radioed for help. Master Sergeant Gordon continued to travel the perimeter, protecting the downed crew. After his team member was fatally wounded, and his own rifle ammunition exhausted, Master Sergeant Gordon returned to the wreckage, recovering a rifle with the last five rounds of ammunition, and gave it to the pilot with the words, good luck, then armed only with his pistol, Master Sergeant Gordon continued to fight until he was fatally wounded. His actions saved the pilot's life. Master Sergeant Gordon's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest standards of military service and reflect great credit on him, his unit, and the United States Army.
2: to the global recon podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. it's a beautiful fourth of july morning i have a very special guest on with me uh scott kelly i served for a number of years in the united states army he's also the executive director of the green beret project um scott how's it going
3: it is going well john it is a it's a beautiful day here at fort bragg as well on the fourth and uh, everybody's getting ready for the festivities and fireworks later on today
2: so Scott, we, um, we have a couple different things you want to talk about. Uh, you served, like I said, for a number of years in the army and, um, you are currently at what rank? Uh, I'm a Colonel 06. Okay. And, and when did you join the army?
3: Yeah, I, I actually enlisted in the army in, uh, 1989, uh, right after high school, uh, was serving with the 101st Airborne Division as a an 11 Bravo infantryman, uh, and I had a had a buddy of mine, we were privates together, and he was applying to the uh, prep school to go on to West Point. And uh, so he talked me into applying with him, and I I got accepted and ended up getting commissioned out of West Point in 1995 uh, back into the infantry. And uh, for, unfortunately, my buddy didn't get accepted, so I was always introduced to his family as the guy who took his slot at the academy. But, uh <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I've been I've been commissioned now for uh, right at 23 years, all in the infantry. Uh, went back to the 101st as a lieutenant, and then uh, to the 82nd for company command time. I've gotten to do a couple different jobs in terms of human resources command, and uh, worked in the Pentagon for a year. Uh, and bulk of my uh, field grade time as a major and lieutenant colonel was working at the special mission unit here on Fort Bragg, and then. Uh, after I left there, uh, did a tour in DC and then, uh, had to pull my hardship tour, which was, uh, brigade command out in Hawaii. So, uh, <laughs> rough duty out there on the beach. Uh, but somebody's got to do it. And then, uh, just PCS back here, uh, after that, uh, for, no, knowing I was going to retire. And so I'm finishing up, uh, currently at Fort Bragg as the inspector general. So, all those folks that know what that is are probably booing right now, uh, the <laughs> inspector general. But uh, it's actually been a great job, great transition job, job still helping the Army out. So uh, no complaints. And it, was, and it was really good to get back to brag with my family. So it's worked out really, really well.
2: Yeah. Um, so you're originally from North Carolina, right?
3: Uh, yeah, I sure am. Uh, just up the road in uh, High Point, so you know now and again the Army puts you in the right place. So uh, yeah, the bulk of my career has actually been here at Fort Bragg, and uh, all my family's in the area, so it works out really, really well. In fact, I got a house full of uh, relatives for the Fourth of July uh, as we speak.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, so, you know, having having gone to different units and and um, you know these units requiring a selection, you have to pass a selection. Can we talk about the the selection and, and some of the mindset and the preparation that's required?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, uh, one of the things I love about the Army is it always gives you the opportunity to do hard things. And, uh, you know, I, I encourage guys, whether you're military or not, is to always kind of be challenging yourself and pushing yourself, uh, you know, whether whether go run a marathon or whatever it is, some of these Spartan races, something, uh, learn a language. Uh, and the beauty of the Army is they give you these opportunities to do it. So, you know, as a young a young, uh, officer coming in, uh, once I did get commissioned, you know, uh, although, although actually I actually have to say as a enlisted soldier, I did start looking at special forces even then though I was, I was too junior at the time. Uh, and obviously you waved that off to go get commissioned, but, you know, just preparing yourself for that is something that, uh, you know, I just encourage guys, you're always kind of in that mode. Uh, if you understand the, you know the secrets in the dirt, if you will. If you put in the work beforehand, it's not. It's not like you just you know prep yourself for a selection uh, and, and then go. It's the all the hours that you put in over over years, literally to you know condition your body, to get yourself mentally uh, toughened to just kind of handle the rigors of it and. Uh, the, the nice thing about the military, I think, is that it's it's almost like you kind of have these gates that you can progress through. You know, you go to Ranger School, which is you know challenging and, and physically demanding, and certainly you know can be mentally and emotionally uh, taxing on guys. And then you, know, you can go through Special Forces selection, and then work your way up the tiers, and and you know end up going through Tier One selection, uh, which which kind of is a high watermark, uh, in terms of just the, the difficulty of the, of the, uh, process itself. But, uh, I guess kind of where I'm going with that is that you, you kind of got to start at the beginning. You know, there's a, there's a process that gets you ready for it mentally and physically, uh, so in terms of like, here's the, here's the secret sauce that you start, you know, the, the 13 week training plan, secret sauce that, uh, that's going to get you ready to go and, and be successful. Uh, I don't really believe in that. I don't think it really exists. I think it's kind of the day in, day out, uh, you know, logging the miles, if you will, uh, always challenging yourself and, and, and putting yourself through tough, tough things, uh, to get you ready for it. It's, um, you know, and, and, and it applies even in, you know, just, a a conventional infantry platoon, right? Doing, doing hard things makes hard things easier later on. And and uh, I know there's always the uh, age-old adage that you don't have to train to suck. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase, but it's common, kind of common in the military. The idea that uh, you don't have to, you don't have to make make it suck just to make it suck. But uh, my counterpoint is. The more you can, uh, you know, suck, if you will, then you become tougher and more prepared for truly difficult circumstances that you're going to face later on. So, uh, you know, the training and the process does certainly work.
2: And as a um, as an officer, when you went through selection, is it the same for an enlisted guy and for an officer or, or there are some different differences there?
3: Um. It looks almost the exact same, uh, throughout the entire process. Uh, and then I'm going to say, uh, we put a little additional microscope on the officers, uh, if you will. Um, so there's a little, there's a little additional look at them, if you will. And, and, you know, it's officers and NCOs in the army are, I'm going to say paid to do different jobs, different roles. And mm-hmm. and certainly when you're working In a, uh, you know, a a tier one special operations unit or generally most special operations unit uh, had, you know, had my NCOs that worked for me stood in a different line 15 years before they'd be doing my job. And, And my only point in that is the talent, the capability are equal. Right. I mean, it's it's not uh, it's it's not somehow an officer's got, you know, I don't know, greater gifts or talents than than an NCO. You know, so at that level, it's just a matter of what the Army has uh, educated you for, trained you for and prepared you for. And then what is the roles and responsibilities that you have uh, uh, and how and what they're wanting you to do? Unfortunately, uh, sometimes in the soft community, we as officers can become enamored with the, with the commando aspect of it. Uh, if you understand what I mean that, you know, there's, there's a, there's a physical shooting, jumping, blowing stuff up that comes at with any special operator officer or enlisted. Uh, but as an officer, that's kind of, I'm going to say my secondary (laughs) or maybe tertiary role, not even secondary, uh, you know, versus the the non-commissioned officers, that is what they do. And they are absolutely the best in the world at it, uh, hands down. Uh, and then, but as an officer, you've got to always be prepared to kind of step back and and recognizing that though I am uh, far less experienced than a lot of the guys that I'm responsible for, that I'm leading in my troop, you know, they've been there for a decade. I've been there for a year, uh, as an, as an officer in the special operations community, you gotta, you got to recognize that you're still you know, being paid to command. And, uh, and so not getting drawn into, I'm going to say the uh, close fight, if you will, but being able to keep uh, your head and eyes up and out, and that's from a figure-driven, often literal perspective, uh, is really critical uh, because great soldiers who are the best at what they do – still need a leader. They still need a commander. They still need someone to be providing purpose and direction, uh, you know, for the, for the operation. There's a, and, and generally speaking the dividing line that most uh, officers and, and their sergeant majors or senior enlisted advisors w- work in the soft community is it's, you know, the NCO is, is, is facing down and in on the target and the, the officers facing up and out. So you're always looking at the external aspects and what have you. Um, but there is absolutely a requirement as officers to be able to uh, recognize the second, third-order effects and be able to guide the organization in the right direction. And uh, you know, the great part about having such talented uh, non-commissioned officers. Uh, is that their, you know, their counsel and influence upon your decision making is is huge. You know, I mean, it's it's so critical uh, as a as a leader in those type of high performing organization is you know in humility to be able to truly listen uh seek the counsel out of those who have been doing this a lot longer than you have but but still balance that perspective with your role as the commander uh recognizing you know what's on the left and right and what's the extended purpose and what have you. Uh, Because, you know, you can, three of us can all look at the same problem and have three different solutions to it. But ultimately uh, someone's kind of got to slap the table and say, this is the direction we're going and this is how we're going to make it work. Uh, And then, you know, everybody moves out from there. Uh, And and so I I give you that because uh, a lot of times it's easy to, to default or defer to kind of the, that commando aspect of working in the community. Uh, But it's really very important uh, for officers to recognize they have a, a uh, equally important role uh, that's, that's really critical for the organization to be successful.
2: Yeah. You know, I had on um, Dave Nielsen a couple of months back and um, we were talking about the night that he lost uh, his dog Pepper uh, when he was at the unit. And Mm -hmm. He was talking about, you know, they they were going after this guy. They they ended up getting him. Pepper kind of went into the side of the riverbank there, and, and they couldn't find her. Yep. And um, they had pilots. The, the pilot, he said, was basically like flying kind of sideways uh, oh, yeah. over the river. And, you know, everyone's looking for Pepper, but this is on an, an overnight operation, so it's still dark out. And uh, you know, Dave obviously said he wanted to continue the search, but the uh the commander was like we, we have to get out of here. Yep. And uh he said he was pretty pissed off about it at the time, but then, you know, later on he realized that there are other things in play that um, you know, yeah he, he wasn't thinking about and, and that's just I guess the what when you just described what you described yep. that kind of played that's, out in that- my head.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you, John, that is a great example. And uh, one I will shout out to Dave Nilsson, what a consummate warrior that guy is. Uh, And it it is those difficult kind of decisions that you're, as a commander, you're wrestling with, right? Because his commander, uh, you know, loved his soldiers and loved Pepper probably as much as, maybe not as much as Dave, but uh, quite a bit, knew the impact of that that canine warrior. and, And certainly that's a very difficult circumstance. But you know, as the commander, you're assessing risk. As the commander, you're assessing what is, you know, what is the minimum force I need to be successful on this operation? You know, what is the right timing to execute operations? You know, those are the art, if you will. There's, you know, there's no math, science uh, answer to it. And and so commanders wrestle with those difficult, difficult problems. And, and you know, ultimately, uh, whether it's a conventional force or a special operations unit, uh, Someone's got to be able to, you know, make the decision with, you know, good insight and and, uh, counsel from those that are uh, uh, good advisors. And and the organization's got to be able to move out of it. And that example you gave with Dave is a great – that's a great example of a difficult, difficult uh, decision that commanders are are required to make uh, by position. And and quite frankly, that that, uh, the soldiers need them to make, right? They, They need officers. They need the commander to be prepared to step forward and make the hard decision when it's hard. Uh, it's funny. I've, uh, as I've progressed in my career, uh, I, I can remember in brigade command, I used to have battalion commanders. They'd be like all apologetic kind of bringing me these, 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 these difficult problems, if you will. And I said, Hey, that's, that's what the army pays you for, right? If, if the, the easier answer is made at the lower level and the decisions never even need to get to the higher guy because uh, guys can just make the decision and move out with it. And so that's what commanders have the responsibility to do and sometimes, uh, you know, commanders deferring uh, responsibility for that to a lower level is, is a bit negligent, in my opinion. Uh, and by the same token, a, a commander being unwilling to make decisions that are appropriate for his level is, is equally negligent, in my opinion. And so, uh, you know, the Army trains us and educates us and prepares us as commissioned officers to assume these duties and responsibilities at the appropriate level. And uh, it's very, very important that we're, that we're able to uh, execute them.
2: Yeah. And I, I think, um, some of that applies even like outside of the army, you know, even at, at work or whatever. Uh, yeah. if you know, you have a, a boss or a director or something like that. And, um, and I, I've seen it, you know, in my life and, and people just kind of, you know, neglecting something that they really should kind of take charge on. Yeah. And, um, and anytime I've seen it, I always immediately thought that that's kind of bad leadership, you know.
3: It it is it is terrible leadership, and I'll I'll uh, not to not to badmouth the army, though I am the IG. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 danger in the military uh, is it can work a couple different ways, uh, you know, micromanagement, which everybody's very you know, familiar with, if you will, where, you know, somebody suddenly got the screwdriver from a thousand miles away. Uh, and, and obviously because of our communication systems and, and the incredible, uh, ISR, you know, you know what I mean by that? Uh, yeah. Uh, surveillance cameras, if you will, uh, you know, because of the technology, you literally have the ability to, to, you know, command and control, if you will, from a thousand miles away. Right. right. Which, which is Terrible. Right. And we, we were very, very, uh, always concerned with that. And then what I've seen also, though, is the opposite. And it's kind of my point of where we kind of push all these responsibilities down to the lowest level. And uh, you know, I'll just be clear, probably, you know, a company commander right now in the army, the load that that Poor young man's got on his back is about 10 times heavier than what I had as a uh, company commander a few, many years back. Uh, and it's just because we push down a lot of responsibilities versus, you know, as a more senior guy taking the responsibility at my level and making the decision that, that needs to be made. And, you know, it's a, uh, we sometimes think we're doing the right thing by empowering subordinates, but a lot of times you're putting, Responsibility at a level where he doesn't either have the education, the training, the experience, or the staff, uh, if you will, to make a good decision, you know, because. Uh, The more senior you go in the military, they give you a staff of, uh, you know, subject matter experts, if you will, uh, who are able to counsel and give advice and that, you know, can do some do some process to help make the best decision. Whereas if we if we keep pushing the pushing the noodle down the hill, it gets to the level where, uh, you know, it's a very young, generally inexperienced guy having to make uh, having to make decisions that he's probably not really well equipped to do. Um, so it's, it's a balance in it. It is a balance. And you're absolutely right, uh, John. It, it, this definitely applies on the outside as well. You know, as I've faced uh, transition, I've, I've started being able to dialogue with a lot of folks that are in the commercial uh, commercial industry or commercial field, if you will. And, and leadership is a, you know, it's it's needed out there desperately. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, uh, the great thing about the Army is it's hard to replicate the leadership education and training that a a senior NCO or officer uh, comes out with. And it's really, really desired by a lot of folks. And the the great part now is in transition is uh, there's a lot of programs, a lot of opportunities for guys to be very successful.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, You mentioned before that you said um, some of those senior NCOs a couple of years ago might have been doing your job or or kind of uh, working in some of those roles. Do you think that over the course of so many years of, of war that some things have changed as far as as, as that goes?
3: Um, yeah, th- and my point in that was, you know, had, uh, I won't use anybody's name, had Sergeant Major uh, Mike or whoever, had he chosen to, you know, finish his college out and get commissioned, or a lot of them already have college, and he had chosen to get commissioned, it, it, he is such a talented guy, he could be, in, you know, he'd be doing the same thing, only with okay, shining. You know what I mean? They're, they're so capable. Uh, it's, it's the, which is why there's a a nice, I'm going to say a nice blurring of the lines, a nice blurring of the roles because of the capability of both the officer and NCO are are right at the, you know, equal level, certainly. And, uh, it's just a matter of the education and training and then the roles and responsibilities that are given to them that are different. Right. And it's, it's the power of, of what they do. You know, that's why, uh, you know clearly non-commissioned officers kind of run the organization is is my phrase i'll use but but officers are expected to command the organization and and that's it can be a bit of a nuance uh play on words but in fact it, there is a very different uh distinction to those two uh, responsibilities
2: right and can you talk about um like what role you had at the unit
3: um, yeah, I, I was generally in command. Uh, I wasn't at the unit very long, quite frankly. Um, uh, relative, you know, most, most of the, particularly with the non-commissioned officers, those guys were out there probably three times. You know, I did about six years out there. Those guys tend to do a couple decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in that time, I was in command just about the majority of the time, and then some ops, ops uh, operations officer roles I had as well. So I commanded the 04 troop level and 05 uh, squadron level
2: okay so um if it's possible i'd like to t- maybe talk about um some of what deploying in a in a in that type of role could be like is you know it like it's more of like a bird's eye view versus obviously the guys you know kicking indoors type of thing
3: yeah it's uh there there's a bit of a blurring in that because you're you're certainly with the uh with the guys but it's uh you know one it you have such a talented, mature population, you know, I, uh, it, it's true, but you know, out of a 16 man troop, there were four guys that were 40 years old uh, hmm. or older. Uh, you know, the junior guy I think had been actually had been a platoon sergeant in the ranger regiment. Uh, so, you know, so the the maturity and the level of experience and all is such a, at such a higher level right. uh, that you really can, do more with less, uh, if, if you understand what I mean by that. Um, and, and it's interesting as an officer, one of the things you've got to always be sensitive to is, uh, uh, doing what we should rather than what we can. Mm. Uh, and, and that can apply from the strategic level all the way down to the very tactical level, you know, because of the capabilities, because of the incredible, talented, uh, soldiers you have, you know it's kind of open field running i mean there's there's as creative as you can get that's that's the direction you can go in terms of executing operations and what have you uh but the balance you've got to always come back to is you know what is what are we here for what's our purpose and our mission uh what are we trying to achieve you know given this deployment window and that's so as a commander that's a lot of what you got to you got to uh, articulate. You know, you got to be thinking through that with with good counsel. You got to be able to articulate that to your guys so they understand. You know, what's the uh, what's the level of risk that's appropriate for these missions? What's the what's what do we need to be doing? You know, is is more better, uh, or, or maybe being more nuanced is better, depending on the operational environment. And you know, from a macro. National level perspective uh, clearly in in some of these wars we have not necessarily done that well you know the ability to go from first gear to fourth gear or from fourth gear to first gear you know and, and ratchet it up and down at the appropriate level is a difficult uh, decision it's an art form uh, wow. really and uh, and so if you take that idea it applies you know even at the smallest kind of assault. Uh, troop level, uh, and then certainly applies all the way up to the national, you know, grand strategy level, if you will, in terms of like, what are we trying to achieve in Syria, or what are we trying to achieve here? Uh, and so as an officer, that's, that's quite a bit of what I always was wrestling with. I was always trying to be able to make sure I communicated, uh, you know, the, the purpose and the direction and what we're trying to get to and, and the nuance of that. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, and, and I think, you know, even at the national level still, we, we have this tendency because special operations bring so much capability uh, to the table and can kind of do anything. I mean, that's kind of the mystique that uh, that we live with. Uh, and, and so when people are looking for solutions and they're looking for answers, it, it's – the easy button's there, right? We'll, yeah. we'll send some special operators in. We'll spend, you know, call up SOCOM or, or what have you, and we'll they'll go in there and fix this thing. In fact, I, I uh, share with you, I, it's probably been a couple of years now, but I was talking to a guy who uh, used to work on the uh, Department of Defense staff, uh, uh, a general officer, a flag officer, and he was <laughs> – he made the comment that uh, he spends the bulk of his time of trying to articulate uh, that the soft community cannot solve all the problems of the nation. You know, yeah. <laughs> You know, particularly if you think about back, you know, a few years, and even now, you know, at the height of it, when when a national leader is trying to address some situation, uh, it's it's awful tempting to say, "Hey, hey, SOCOM, what can you do to fix this problem?" You know, what can you right. do? Whatever, world hunger, you know, and uh, and 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 I'll be honest with you, John, it's uh, that. That same mindset, uh, you know, it can tempt me. I'm guilty of this at the t- tactical level. You know, I, I did things because we could do them and not necessarily because we should have been doing them. And mm-hmm. it is something you got to always be wrestling with uh, in that regard. And, and it is, uh, you know, I, I describe uh, when I think of operators, uh, I often say uh, those are guys that uh, whether you want them to be, you know, a fireman in Atlanta or an ice cream salesman in, you know, Iowa – they're going to be successful at at whatever it is they put their hand to. I mean, they're just the caliber of the individual, uh, you know, banking, whatever, whatever they put their mind to and start into. They're just some of the natural gifts and and characteristics that are are, going to make it successful. And they're, you know, to the greatest extent possible, whatever mission you put them on, they're going to make it successful. And unfortunately, you know, we've got to be very sensitive as, as senior leaders and commanders and kind of the strat- strategic uh, folks to recognize that there is a limitation to what can be achieved even through very uh, well-executed tactical operations, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think um, it, it's, it's all very interesting because – I think if you look at people who kind of reach the pinnacle of, of whatever field they're in, there right. are some similarities in the in the way that they think. Um, mm-hmm, you know, e- even though it's like you know, if you're a computer programmer, um, you're obviously not like a special operations guy. You know what I mean? There's a difference in the physical and, and some of that. Yes. But uh, I think some of those, some of that, can do mindset really translates into almost anything absolutely and, um and and also kind of touching on the on the part of you know the leadership always wanting to kind of fall back on special operations, I think we've seen a lot of that in the last um you know seventeen years, and I think to a point, I think the soft community in general has or I, you know there's been articles uh, about it written about it, and I've talked to guys about it where people feel like in the soft community there's been some kind of burnout taking place because of the, the, the high demand on such a small community.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You're, I, I don't disagree with y'all. And I think you're right. I mean, suicide rates are very high in, in the special ops community. Uh, you know, go down all the trouble points, you know, divorce, alcoholism. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely, definitely taken its toll on it. And there's certainly a lot of guys uh you know who have transitioned out of the military and are still really wrestling with uh, with a lot of burdens. Uh, and and the good news is there's a lot of organizations out there to help. Uh, but I, there is certainly the hesitation for guys to reach out and ask for help because certainly for you know your whole career that is that's not the mentality and the mindset that got you to that point of of working in those type of organizations. Uh, but what we we as leadership have always been trying to communicate is but but we need you in the game you know for a long term we want you to be successful you know 20 years after your career we you know even after you're out of the army and and so uh guys seeking help when they're struggling with uh with dealing with a lot of the aspects of the, just things that they've seen and been asked to do and and you know i i tell guys all the time you know we have asked guys to do things that man was not meant to do I mean, we have We've absolutely put guys in those circumstances. And, uh, and so trying to encourage uh, soldiers to seek out assistance and, you know, either peers or chaplains or uh, psychologists or psychiatrists, uh, you know, there's so many organizations. And I definitely, definitely encourage guys to to pursue that, uh, you know, anybody out there that's listening that may be struggling. And I appreciated, you know, Dave Nielsen, even in his talk, you know, he talked about that. It, it's, yeah. it's difficult. It's difficult to wrestle through stuff. And what I've personally found is uh, a lot of times you structure things so that you don't Ever really deal with it? You know, it's kind of a—I guess avoidance is probably the, the clinical term—but you just you 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 don't you don't engage in certain conversations, you don't yeah. talk to certain people uh, because you know they, these things will come back upon you. Uh, and, and there's a component of that of just being able to make your make your life still be successful, right? I mean, you still got to pay bills and take care of your family, you got kids and what have you. Uh, but that only, uh, will really, I think function for a certain period of time. And then eventually, you know, some things can bubble up on you. And my encouragement, uh, and counsel myself as well is to head that off at the pass, you know, begin, begin engaging with somebody that, that can help you, uh, kind of ease through the the unburdening of, of a lot of that, the experiences that you have as a, you know, in combat.
2: Yeah. I think for, specifically for Dave Nielsen, I think he was um, kind of alluding to that, that he felt a little better just being able to talk about some of these things and, um, you know, kind of keeping it boxed up for so long. And yeah. I, I guess, um, you know, going through an, an entire career, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years of, uh, you know, like you said, having that mindset where it's like can do and and you know you, you overcome any obstacle regardless of yeah uh, yeah what's in front of you. I think it's it's really uncomfortable for a guy who's made it so far with this particular kind yeah. of mindset, and then to uh- kind of stop and just turn around completely and go in the other in a different direction, um, especially when it's something that's you know, it has to do with the individual. It's, I guess it's always a little easier when it's, when it's someone else, but when it's you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's uncomfortable, yeah. you know, it's like,
3: yeah, John, I give great advice to everybody else. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, you know, and there's, there's, it's interesting. I've even realized it. Uh, I remember being a brigade commander in Hawaii and I had a conversation with a staff sergeant who uh, you know, he had been deployed numerous times. as a very young guy and it, that idea of playing hurt and that idea of, uh, you know, not taking time to take a knee, even, even with a physical injury, you know, even with a, a bum shoulder or, or what have you, uh, guys in, uh, in the army still think that they've got to play, you know, push through it. They've got to, they got to make it work. They, they, you know, cause they don't want to jeopardize their career. They don't want to jeopardize their soldier. They don't want to, you know, I got a deployment coming up or what have you. Uh, and, and that's even with a physical, uh, injury, and so then when it becomes a, you know, something, not a physical injury, but more of an emotional or a, or a mental, uh, struggle that guys are wrestling with. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a hundred meters from, from a guy walking in to seek help for something like that, you know, cause he's still, he's still trying to make it work and keep things going. And, uh, right. unfortunately uh, your point's exactly right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's something we've got to continue to uh, address and I think it will be a continual effort. Uh, you know, there's never going to be a, A silver bullet, if you will, or a a clever answer to it, but certainly encouraging guys, making the resources available to them. I think a lot of the peer-to-peers, you know, mates talking one to another, I I think is very valuable as well, particularly as guys, you know, are willing to kind of raise their hand and and seek some help out and and they see the benefits from it and are able to communicate that to others.
2: Yeah. And I think, um, kind of like the really old, like old school mentality, like World War II kind of days is uh, you know, just shake it off, you know, and and yep. don't talk about it. And I think culturally it was a little different as well. But, um, and then I think kind of coming into these these wars, two thousand one, and and up till now, in the beginning, I guess people just kind of had that mentality, like, oh, just shake it off, you know. But after so many years of of continuous war fighting and deploying and and you know getting hurt and recovering and going back, I think uh, this shift, I think, needs to take place to where a guy like yourself or, you know, a guy like Dave Nielsen, uh, hey, you know, I, I had some issues and actually stopping and reversing and, and going in a different direction and talking about some of these things, you know, as they can be talked about, you know, some things you, you can't talk about, but um, m- makes a difference. And I think if guys say, hey, look, you know, this guy is, um, uh, you know, he got nine deployments in all in special operations. Uh, and he's saying, yeah, you know, it's okay for you to seek help. I think that will help some people, you know?
3: Yeah. And, and we've gotten much, much better, John, much, much better. I mean, uh, literally one of the senior command sergeant majors, uh, several years ago, I think he's retired now, but, uh, you know, Chris Ferris came forward and started talking about a lot of this and, you know, his personal experience. And this is a guy that grew up in the, you know, the, the special mission unit, you know, long standing, a lot of history. And he started talking about it publicly. And and so that's why I tell you it's we've definitely gotten a lot better, absolutely. But it is a continual, you know, it's a continual kind of dialogue or a continual steady drumbeat of, hey, there are resources out there. We need you to reach out for assistance. Uh, you know, and 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 some of the, you know, the Army's even gone to some I'm gonna say directed, you know, directed type efforts where they're doing screening, pre-screening, post-screening, uh, a lot of that type stuff, and and you certainly can catch some folks in in there as well. And, uh, and I shouldn't use that word catch folks because it's not like you're they're hiding it or something. Although I think some dudes kind of resist it, uh, but you know we're, we're we're hopefully getting much better. at The opportunities that are out there. You know, there's there's ways to get get assistance, um, and it's just a lot of it is as you point out. You know, culturally you guys don't want to come forward, and and it's. Uh, It's a difficult thing. And then, of course, the whole piece you and I haven't talked yet is, you know, families, you know, families and kids. Uh, You know, there's a price. I've I've got about to launch my second one off to college. There is a price uh, families pay for for what. You know, mom and dads have had to go and do. Right. Uh, so that's the other aspect of, of thinking of the, the military family as a whole and how do we make resources available to them and uh, you know make sure as parents we're staying in tuned to where kids are and their development and the kind of the impacts of uh, of, of uh, you know the the experiences that you know they don't they don't have. It's an interesting dynamic and I'll, I'll share. it I'll share it publicly. Here it goes. But uh, you know, my daughter we were talking the other day and she's about to be a freshman in college and uh, she said it wasn't so much that I was gone uh, a lot. It was the fact that when I was gone, she wasn't ever sure I would come home.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And you know, that really took me back, John it was something I'd never, never considered uh, you know, that idea of a, of a young, you know, whatever she was at the time, 10, 10 to 15 uh, wrestling or always kind of dealing with that aspect of yeah. You know, dad may never make it back. I mean, that's a that's a pretty heavy load. And so I just, you know, that's the other piece I'll encourage your your listeners is to, to stay in tune to your kids and recognize the impact on them. And certainly your spouse, obviously, who's who's wrestling with it uh, while you're, where you're gone and certainly trying to keep the household moving. Uh, so that's the other component that I hope will encourage guys to, you know, reach out and talk to folks and and get some assistance as there is, you know, there's others beyond just you. And, you know, I've talked to spouses whose uh, husbands are just Struggling, struggling mightily, and uh, you know they they wrestle with it because they're trying to help them and they 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 feel they can't and they're you know frustrated and you know he won't seek assistance and 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 so uh, you know as as a soldier I encourage you particularly if you have spouses and kids is to you know remember there's other people in play here and so uh, you know being able to. I don't know, swallow your pride or whatever you got to do uh, to to make sure you're, you're getting the assistance that you need uh, is very, very important.
2: Yeah. And I, I want to thank you for sharing that. You know, that's obviously something that's deeply personal. And, um, you know, just thinking like, what is a 10 year old going through when they think about something like that? You that's, know,
0: exactly right.
2: And it's just, it's, it's tough on the spouse, but the spouse is an adult. And, understands these things. And, you know, you've had these conversations, uh, maybe you were together before you joined the military, or maybe you got together afterwards. So these things are right. understood, you know?
3: Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree with you completely. It's far easier for an adult to process it than a, than
2: a child. Right. And, and I think it's just, you know, what, what is that kind of effect can that have on a child's mind, you know? And it's, it's thinking about things that maybe other kids, their age don't really think about. Um, you know yep. people have different experiences you know some people experience kind of tougher things at a younger age and and then some don't and it's just uh it's just kind of how life plays out but um yeah. i think uh, kind of talking back about some of the the struggles that guys have transitioning out of it out of the military out of the service uh there's, i feel like there's such a a uh, in some ways there's such a disconnect between society and 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 what the military is doing and i think like if you if you go back you know hundreds of years um when warriors came back from fighting or or, you know whatever it is that they were taking part in you know stories were told you know people sat around the fire and told stories that's how things were passed down right and Mm -hmm. i think people appreciated the warriors more because the wars were happening you know at their gates you know Right, so, right. it's it's there's a disconnect when all the fighting is taking place thousands of miles away from home. Yeah, it's and the, um,
3: on the edge of the empire.
2: Right, and it's it's just like when uh, when you don't really have a I, there was like a meme online somewhere, and it was it was something like it was right after there was an attack or an attempted attack here in New York. Um, I, I think it was when the guy the guy like. The device kind of blew up on them in forty second street in one of the tunnels, yeah, and right. um the meme was like you know top ten things New Yorkers are scared of uh trains being late um you know a, a couple other kind of stupid <laughs> new York things, and then at the bottom of the list was like an attack from ISIS. and you know while while that could be kind of funny, I think it just kind of illustrates the disconnect from what the you know the small number of men and women who are serving in combat areas are dealing with and then everyone else back home yeah. you know
3: yeah yeah although, although you know it's uh, you know particularly if you think about all the shootings and what have you there is an, a dynamic of you know young kids these days legitimately being concerned for something happening you yeah know, particularly if you experience something like the one of the bombings in New York or what have you I mean uh, it, it is a there, there's a component to that, that, that we don't want to overlook as well, uh, you know, of, of the kind of the, I'm going to say everyday civilian, uh, having, having a little bit of, uh, fear as well, which is not good for us. Although I do, John, I do got to balance everything we have said. Uh, there is a dangerous narrative, uh, that, you know, all us service veterans are broken down and all of us service veterans can't function. And yeah. I mean, that's that is a dangerous, dangerous narrative, and and uh, you know, there's certainly uh, we we want to ensure the right guys are getting help and that people are seeking out assistance and and you know, transitioning well into a civilian community. But you know, vast vast majority of veterans are doing very very well. Yeah. You yeah. know, unemployment's very low, high demand for veterans, and you know, I talk to companies now, obviously. Uh, uh, all over the place. There's a high demand for what veterans can bring to the table for them and their employment. Uh, you know, veterans are doing great uh, volunteer work. Tons of nonprofits that are started by veterans and, and such. So it, it's a balance, right? Where we wanna we wanna make sure the guys are getting assistance as they need it, and and hopefully, you know, getting getting themselves in a good place. To, uh, to where they can really uh, continue to, to be as successful outside the military as they were in. Uh, but I do worry a little bit that sometimes there's a tone in the in the civilian sector that, you know, they look at some of these, you know, movies coming out of the recent GWAT era, and, and they kind of think that all of us are, you know, dysfunctional and, and drunkards and can't hold down a job and are dangerous.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think that is a, a fair point to talk about. Um you know, in, in my experience as a civilian dealing and working with uh, retired military, active military, um, I can say that I know that when we're working on a specific project or we're doing something, yeah. I know that the 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 man or woman that I'm working with is going to bring, you know, 110 percent. And I have to make sure that I'm keeping up with that, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I think it's just so just a difference in like the jobs and experiences that you have from your time in the service and absolutely, you know, uh, in a typical civilian work week, you're working about 40 hours. Um, you know, you, you might have an hour commute to work. So you, maybe you're doing 10 hours commuting. So that's about 50 hours. Um, but I think if you look at a lot of military jobs and, and especially, uh, infantry or combat arms or or job supporting combat arms people are working like super long hours i mean 40 hours is like a a a break in in some ways you know and i think when you have people who are coming from that you know they're kind of hardened you know to a to a certain degree and then you know they, they have to in some ways maybe even tone it down a little bit in the civilian sector
3: yeah, that, that's a great point. You know, you're a soldier 24-7. That's you know, We always say that. Uh, and certainly different jobs and different phases of your career, you'll be, you know, working a lot or maybe not working so much when you're, I don't know, in a school or something. But, uh, you know, it, it's important also for veterans as they transition is to recognize, though there is tons of uh, nonprofits, helping veterans transition, you know, all these big companies or, you know, Walmart wanting to hire 20,000 veterans by 2020 or what have you, you know, they're, they're it, it just, you know, as a veteran, you're not entitled to a job, you know, they're not, right. they don't, they're not going to give you anything. And so, uh, you know, my encouragement is as much, you know, effort and preparations you put into, you know, getting ready for deployment or getting ready for a selection or, or whatever it is, you know, in your career, put that same mentality on, put that same hat on, and go about it to your transition and figuring out, you know, what you right. want to do, where you want to be. And, uh, you know, when you get in there, uh, just, you know, start doing what you do. And, uh, quite frankly, very quickly, uh, they, they recognize the, the value you're bringing to their organization. And so though I know a lot of guys, when we transition, we think we're kind of taking several steps back because, you know, obviously the, it's not an equivalent, uh, no one, no one wants to pay me to run a run on an infantry brigade. Um, but because of the qualities and characteristics that you bring from the military, the experiences and training and education you've received from the military, you're very, very quickly going to be a, a value added to any any company out there. And so, uh, you know, I just encourage veterans to kind of put that mindset on as they start looking to transition and be be purposeful, uh, you know, really work through what it is you want to do, take advantage of all the various things. Uh, uh, organizations that are there to assist you. And then, you know, when you get in there, you just, you got to keep working like you've always worked hard. And, uh, and eventually, you know, you're just going to continue to move up and be uh, be successful and help out a company somewhere.
2: So Scott working in the roles that you've, you've been in, in your career um, it involves you being leading men in combat or being a leader mm-hmm. of men in combat arms. Can we talk about some of the lessons you've learned over the years?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I think the front side is probably, you know, this is the role of an officer, right? I've never, never been a non-commissioned officer, but I think as an officer, you got to always be on the front side of, uh, of those things, setting the conditions, thinking through, uh, you know, what's the level of risk that is appropriate to be assumed? How do you, uh, put the assets in the right place with the right guidance and instruction to ensure they're going to be, you know, useful for you. Uh, and, and then, then you got to know the the timing and the, the right time and place to, to go forward with it. Um, and that is all kind of inherent in what you get trained and educated on as an officer is to be thinking that way, you know, and, and of course, what I'm describing is, you know, indirect fire assets, you know, is there, are we artillery the objective? Uh, Is there ISR assets overhead that we're using? What's the right infiltration method? Um, All these kind of, you know, is there a QRF on the hook, Uh, whatever it is, kind of external assets you're doing to start setting the conditions Uh, to essentially get everything in position and then, and then the close fight may or may not begin if, if required to do it. Uh, so I think there's a component to that. And then, uh, in the, in the midst of it, I'm going to say is the ability to keep your head above the fray. Um, you know, I've often when I talk with guys often said, you know, once you're, once you're pinned down uh, as the leader, then the only guy you're leading is the guy that you can reach, you know, that's within arm's reach. And so uh, how do you ensure that you're able to communicate? How do you ensure you're in a position where you're going to be able to, you know, understand the situation and make decisions. Uh, and so positioning on the battlefield is a, is a key thing that a, that a, a commander has to, has to be thinking through. Um, you know, certainly as a, as a, Certain or level of organizations, you've got to be prepared to step forward. You know the, I think of the the young lieutenant leading the platoon. You know he's got to be prepared to step forward at certain moments to to uh, get get across the line, if you will. Uh, but as a commander, where do you position yourself on the battlefield to to be able to continue to have the right effect that you need to have? And then you know, kind of post uh, post operations, I'm going to say, is uh, you know the ability to uh, that, get onto the next ridgeline, if you will. You know, it's, it's can happen that, uh, you know, when, when bad circumstances happen, there's a characteristic I use when I'm looking at guys for future potential, uh, that that reference references determination. And it's, uh, it's the ability when, when kind of things go badly or something's gone, not well, uh, the ability to kind of process that rapidly and internally, and then, you know, kind of, shake it off and say, okay, fellas, let's, you know, get your rucks back on. We got to, we got to get moving to the next one. We got to, we got to continue the, to go forward. And, uh, you know, as a leader, that's the tone, that's the, that's the culture that you kind of establish in the organization. And it's very, very, uh, you got to be very purposeful, in my opinion, about who you are and how you communicate. And, uh, and then, uh, that's, that's kind of the the essence, if you will, of being able to kind of lead men in combat, uh, if you will. Although the, the great thing about the soft community is rarely as an officer you're having to lead men in combat. This time you're trying to you know pull them back a little bit. They're yeah. you, know, you know they're super aggressive, uh, super competent. They'll they'll you know I, I, I use this phrase I step to, to say don't outrun my headlights. You know don't. Yeah. don't don't you move so fast that I that I can't uh, stay with you and I'm, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek there uh, but you know it's not you don't you don't have the problem of uh, you know guys not being able to perform or go forward uh, I, I've often you know between a conventional experience and a, and a special operations experience I often say it's the it's the difference between being an NBA coach and a high school coach right you know I, I high school coaches you know Patting them on the backs, getting them up, what have you. The NBA level is just kind of manage managing the incredible talent you got, right. uh, give the greatest effects, you know. Because everybody, uh, you know, particularly at the special mission unit level, they were the best at what they did wherever they were at, you know. I don't, I don't care what it was, whether it be a cook or a truck driver, or a, you know, yeah. a, a operator. Um, you know, they were the best at what they did. And so, how do you, as that leader? get all those, that, that talent moving in the same direction and synchronized, uh, you know, to bring the right effect at the right time. And I'm reemphasizing that last part, the right effect at the right time, you know, uh, and that's, there's, there that's the kind of the officership I'm going to say, uh, that I've, I've always viewed it as.
2: Uh, based on your experiences and, and schooling, uh, you spent a lot of time, obviously at the strategic level, um, yeah. you know, to move up, move up in the ranks and, uh, whatnot. You have to go to different schooling, uh, including the war college. Can we talk about what some of that is like? And does that include a lot of military history?
3: Um, not military history. That's an interesting point. I'll start with that one. Uh, so we as a uh, army, modern army, we do not, I think, Enforce, uh, and I'm guilty of this. We do not enforce or encourage the study of military history as much as we probably should. Hmm. I think you find guys who, just because of their natural, uh, you know, likes and dislikes, will will gravitate towards reading more military history and uh, and and particularly studying certain periods and and what have you. And it's and it's hugely powerful. Uh, you know, kind of nothing's new under the sun, right. and so recognizing that. whether it's strategic decisions or tactical decisions, the decision-making is still the same as it was, you know, whatever, 3,000 years ago. Um, And, and so I think it's very, very important. And I I will comment to you that I think a lot of uh, a lot of our partnered armies, you know, I've I've done a ton of work with uh, foreign armies. They do a much better job of reading history, studying history. They're just, I'm going to say they're more professional. Uh, and and unfortunately, I think, you know, I like I said, I got commissioned in 95. So that at least frames everybody's time war- or timeline for me of when I was serving. Uh, there was a huge push towards kind of uh, the business models. I mean, mm. we you know, it was it was almost, you know, you read you read Cotter's how to change culture or whatever the heck that name of that book was, uh, you know, it was all these business ideas and organizational structure, leadership discussions and what have you. And uh, far, far less was, y- you know, uh, studying the, the Greek wars or, or, you know, civil war or world war two or what have you. And we just didn't do a whole lot of that. Uh, and And I think it's probably a gap in our game as in our development, of that is, is we don't do enough of it. And so, you know, obviously I encourage you guys read on your own and I'm guilty as most, uh, I don't, I don't do it as nearly as much as I should have. And I didn't during my career. Uh, but I think it is something that the the school system and, and, and you know, this is uh, kind of back to your original question about the strategic level. Uh, you know, it's, it's a constant balance that, that senior leaders are always wrestling with, right? If I've got you you know so let's take the war college i've got you in the war college so there's 10 months i've got you what goes in during those 10 months and what comes out because you know there's limited capacity for how much uh, instruction i can put in how many experiences i can get to a guy uh, what have you and and you know so they're balancing do i add some more history or do i add some more you know joint planning or do i add some more you know Program objective memorandums for you, all you palm people, uh, you know, budgeting type stuff. What what is the right uh, curriculum that, that we need in there? And uh, so I have been, I'm going to say, blessed to have gone to uh, I went to the Joint Advanced Warfighting School as a junior major. Uh, in fact, it was before I came to Bragg uh, to work in the soft community, uh, which is essentially the joint equivalent of uh, Sam's and Sam's is the army's strategic planners course. So I got uh, you know, master's degree, if you will, in strategic planning during JAWS as a major, and then certainly went to the war college as a Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel at the time uh, and, and got a, another session on strategy, another degree in strategy. And it is, you know, at that level, it is, and I'll, I'll bore your audience to death, I'm sure, but uh <laughs> you know, the ability to translate uh, policy into strategy is, is very, very difficult. And that's really what that level is trying to do, right? When the president makes a speech, what is, you know, his words start to drive defense policy. And what does that look like? And, you know, when we roll out National security strategies and national defense strategies, and all your you're, you're interpreting where the nation as a whole is trying to go. You know, theoretically, the Constitution gives us our grand strategy, uh, but at the practical end of it all, what does that mean? I am trying to do in. You name the country, uh, you know, of the day that we're that we're wrestling with, right. uh, and it's very, very difficult to do. And particularly in uh, the modern age with globalization and technology, at the you know at the pace information moves now, I, I think the struggle we have is that leaders just, quite frankly, they don't have time to digest a situation. Right? It's within thirty seconds. There's a microphone in your face, and suddenly you're you're off the cuff making strategy, right? Very, very dangerous, right? Not where we want to be uh, versus the ability to kind of, you know, put it before some subject matter experts who can really analyze the problem, look at the full situation and develop a greater uh, uh, strategy, you know, and and strategy being that ends, ways and means, you know, what do we do with what we have to achieve what ends, uh, what goals? And, And unfortunately, I think a lot of uh, foreign policy over the last couple decades has been this will sound terrible, but make it up as you go. You know, we yeah. kind of. <laughs> We're kind of just keep doing what we're doing because right. that's what we've been doing, and and it's uh, it, and I'm I'm sympathetic, right? I'm, I'm glad I'm not the guy in the shoe in the seat having to make those decisions uh, because it's challenging. But I do worry that a lot of times, and that probably this dovetails all the way back to the soft being the easy button, right? We just you know, what are we going to do about wherever Nigeria or wherever? <laughs> we're going to put some soft in there, you know, right. uh, and we start trying to solve problems that way. So the schooling you get at that level, that strategic level, is uh, really principally focused in a couple areas. And I'm going to say one is what I was just talking about, that kind of strategic planning. You know, what do we need to do to you know, deter Russia? What do we need to do to prepare for North Korea? What have you? And then the other component of it is uh, what I'll phrase, John, the enterprise level army. You know, the army is a ginormous organization, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollar budget, uh, million plus men in the army. How does it work? How do we run it? How do we uh, make it go and be successful? And uh, one of the jobs I had was uh, working for the chief of staff of the army. So he's the he's the most senior uniformed officer in the military. Um, but But let me be straight when I tell you that the guy who runs the army is the guy in the tie the secretary of the army is the guy who runs the army. Uh, uh and, and I say that from experience, but, you know, obviously at that level, you know, his day to day rarely ever really touched on operational events forward, right? He's trying to prepare the army for 2035, hmm. right? He's trying to, Uh, bring in the right number of soldiers of the right MOS, get them the right type of training. He's trying to understand or or guide the National Guard's role, the reserve component role. He's dealing with uh, budgetary issues every day, you know, across the river with Congress and trying to make sure we got the right funds. We have the right funds that we need at the right level to be successful. And, uh, you know, I happened to be there uh, twenty. 2013, somewhere right around there, uh, you know, with the kind of the drawdown, we came out of Iraq and everybody was kind of, you know, looking to draw down the army. And it was, oh, John, it was terrible up there mm-hmm. at that time. It was, you know, everybody was trying to draw us down to nothing. And of course now we're going the other direction, right? We're having to grow because what do you, what do you know? Peace didn't break out. Um, right? So, so we still need an army. Uh, so at the strategic level, those are kind of the big, the two big buckets that uh, the War College tries to get guys ready for, and then obviously, you know, there's a kind of a third leg to that, and those are the, the folks that are coming out of the War College to go be brigade commanders, right? That's the other the other aspect. Of it. But but generally speaking, the course is well, the course is definitely not geared towards those. The course is geared geared towards the strategic planning and then the enterprise level uh, efforts of the army, because the you know running the army is a big big uh massive effort and it takes a combination of you know department of the army civilians and certainly uniformed personnel and uh, it's just very very challenging to do so that's part of what the war college does but i probably just bored your listeners to death but uh no, you, can, you, it, you can pull my string on that one because <laughs> i've got some experience with it
2: <laughs> no it's it's all interesting and i think um it's worth having that perspective because it puts things into perspective you know um
3: Yeah, yeah, it it is. And that is a good that's a great point because the the one caveat I will I don't know who your listeners always comprised of. But, uh, you know, a lot of times, particularly as an officer, we have command billets, but then we also at various points in our career become staff officers. And so you're in a staff position and. You know, guys just need to always remember, uh, you know, the guy out there at the tip of the spear, uh, his 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 life and success of that mission depends on the staff work you do. And uh, so doing the very best you can, even when you're not in one of the sexy uh, command billets or, you know, you're not forward, uh, whether it's I mean, mean, it could be something as simple as you're responsible for training soldiers. Right. Young soldiers. Well, that soldier is going to eventually, you know, lead men in combat. And so what you give to him is going to prepare him for that next level or whatever budgeting, right? If we don't have the dollars, we aren't going to be able to train our guys to have them ready to go forward and do what they need to do. So, uh, everybody's got a piece to play in the, uh, in the big scheme of things.
2: Right. And I think some of that gets lost sometimes, um, you know, even like just podcasting or, or any kind of media that's, uh, working with or dealing with special operations or combat arms, you, you kind of see the cool stuff, you know, the, the stories of gunfights and stuff like that. Uh, but there's so much more that goes into it with, you know, and as you, obviously, as you just talked about the, uh, strategically, you know, you have to think about what's going to happen in, um, 25 years, you know, what, what conflicts may we be engaged in? And I, I think, um, I saw an article from the, I think it's the Journal of Special Operations Medicine, uh, JSOM, I think. And um, they were talking about uh, the Army or or at least a part of it placing uh, emphasis on prolonged field care. With yeah. with the idea that we may not have uh dominance of the skies. So oh, yeah. Basically meaning we won't be able to get a helicopter in within an hour and have a guy at, or you know, on a surgical table within an hour or two hours. Um so- Well yeah, you're
3: hitting on it, man. That's a big that's a big deal. Area denial. It's uh you know, we haven't not had air supremacy in I don't know what, sixty years plus, you
2: know? Right. I mean, we've
3: never we've never had to contend for the sky and that's a huge huge uh, issue going forward
2: right and, and and for the audience who might not be familiar with what prolonged field care is, is is basically a medic having to sit on a patient for you know a number of days it could be 3 days 4 days 5 days uh, whereas in the last you know uh, 16 17 years you would, a medic would have to stabilize a patient I'm sure there's been instances where they haven't been able to get out so quickly, but um, for the most part, because of the capability of the United States military, they've been able to get wounded servicemen and women on a a surgical table within a couple of hours. So just the the concept of, of focusing on prolonged field care means that at the leadership level, people are looking forward to what conflicts we may fight in the future. And it may be against a, a strong military where it wouldn't be so easy to dominate the skies in every single uh, battle space.
3: Yeah, and and John, your 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 medical extended care comment is that's just one tiny
2: right, just one slice of it
3: component yeah. of what a huge issue you know, and the uh, how we will fight is such a continual. And difficult thing to think through, Um, you know, and obviously nobody's got a crystal ball, but there is an interesting dynamic I'll share with you. Uh, because with technology, there is this, obviously, the military is trying to really push the edge of technology. And, uh, you know, we want to improve our acquisition process and what have you. But the struggle we have, uh, quite frankly, particularly in the conventional army, because of the scope and scale, uh, is is the when the equipment transitions so quickly, our soldiers cannot master it. They don't stay highly proficient at it. So though you may give me the best latest gizmo, uh, if you give it to me two weeks before I deploy, I'm probably not going to be highly competent with it. And, uh, and so it's this, this balance that the the army struggles with and, and because of the job I'm in now, I see it uh, pretty closely of, of how rapidly we want to field something. And, you know, the, the, haven't been in the soft community, I recognize that we can, you know, kind of buy try decide so I'll buy 200 of something let the boys go give it a shake out and we don't like it we throw away the 200 and go buy the next one well in the in the, in the conventional army that doesn't work because you're right. buying 200,000 of them you know and and the ability to uh, you know test drive something like that is, ju- is just not there and then you know and of course there's a level of training right I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with initial entry soldiers I'm dealing with uh, you know guys that just quite frankly don't get nearly nearly as much training time as as a soft operator does, and so to expect him to be able to pick up a piece of equipment and you know within a short period of time be a master of that piece of equipment, it's very problematic. And of course, uh, now I know I'm boring your audience, but that goes into maintenance. It goes into sustainment of the piece of equipment. It goes into everything. So it's a very Uh, complex, uh, system that the army is. And, and you're, you're touching on it, that idea of what does the future army look like? So what do I need to be fielding now to, uh, to be ready in the future?
2: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's all, I mean, personally myself, I, I find this all fascinating. Um, I think generally people are like, you know, the sexy stuff is cool, you know, but, um, yeah,
3: Although it is, uh, although I do give the shout out, you know, all the sexy stuff in the soft community wouldn't happen without the incredible support guys (laughs) that we've got. And those guys, it's like I said earlier, they're best at wherever they were, whatever they do, they're probably the very best at it. I mean, and it's incredible the the work those guys do.
2: Right. Right. So now I'd like to talk about, uh, the Greenbury project and, um, and your role there and, and, um. You know, just kind of looking at the the website and and reading like the mission statement, it's all very uh, based around what the Green Berets are experts at in you know going into an area, learning the way things are done and and trying to build up organically from the ground up and, yeah. and you know whatever the whatever the focus is. And from what I read on on the website, I think it, it looks a lot like that's what the Green Beret Project is. Uh,
3: Yeah, we're, 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 yeah, it's, it's, uh, so just for way of history for folks, uh, so, uh, there's a guy named Justin who I had met in Iraq years ago, uh, who SF guy, uh, left active duty special forces and went on full time with the, uh, FBI and he gets stationed up in, uh, Delaware and within just a few months, he quickly realizes that we're not going to rest our way out of the problems in these uh, areas of concentrated poverty in the, cis- in the cities. And uh, so he calls up uh, some SF retired SF guys and says, hey, can you come help me out, uh, see if we can make a difference in some of these kids' lives? And uh, so the name, the Green Beret Project, obviously reflects on the founders who are Green Berets. Uh, but it also really reflects upon the model we're using right. and so far we've been very successful in Dover transitioned to Wilmington being very successful and even recently just opened up in Savannah uh, and I can talk to all that in a little bit but uh, you know the idea of a, of a green beret it's all those characteristics and I appreciated your comment John about you know there's guys that are computer scientists who aren't green berets, but they're green beret like, and that's, you know, critical for us as the green beret project is we absolutely it's, you know, ran by special operators. Uh, but the, so many of our volunteers are just green beret like they have the same mindset, right? It's the ability to go in, you assess the problem or the environment, you understand the situation, you identify who's friend and foes, if you will. And you start, uh, building this organic, uh, uh, army, you know, the, the idea of sending 12 Green Berets into a country and they and eventually build an entire army, uh, you know, through the train the trainer model. And that's what we're doing with the youth. So these, I don't want to belabor the history too much, but, you know, our urban areas have built concentrated areas of poverty, you know, particularly in the African American community. You know, you go all the way back to slavery, Jim Crow laws, the uh, where we chose to build highways, the federal housing act. I mean, I could, I could go on forever about why we're where we are, but the point is we're where we are. And so a lot of these youth, they don't know anything outside of their neighborhood. And so they don't, they they can't even comprehend something different. It's, it's really sad. I'll talk to some of these kids, you know, and you're talking to a 13 year old kid and he'll, you know, what do you want to do in the future? And he's either going to be an NBA star. He's going to be a, uh, you know, a hip hop artist, or he's going to sell drugs. I mean, and they're, And and John, they're serious. They're not being flippant with you. Uh, So it's very, very sad. So, what we do uh, with the Green Beret Project is it's really a mentorship program. And we come in, we get these kids exposed to to, uh, other opportunities in life. Uh, We begin to help give them some life skills, if you will. You know, most you know, I'm, I'm, I, I describe my, my childhood as leave it to beaver. You know, if anybody could be old enough to remember the leave it, to <laughs> Beaver three you know, very white picket fence. And so, appreciating and understanding the environment most of these kids are in that we deal with, you know, they they essentially raise themselves. And so yeah. we just help them start to understand, you know, Hey, how to save money. Hey, how to, you know, make your bed in the morning, how to be on time, how to fix a nutritious meal. And where do you find food that's better for you than, you know, eating out of seven 11 uh, all the time and, and then showing them different opportunities. And, and that can be as simple as, you know, we got guys, we take them out, Guys will take them out fishing, right? You know, we get volunteers that volunteer their boat and tackle and what have you. And you just give the kids something different, and you show them a different way. And then yeah. we really start to guide them into uh, uh, some either vocational or educational tracks, if you will. And and it's remarkable how kids. I mean, just a few dollars will make a big difference for a kid because as a, as you come into the Green Beret program and you show, you know, you're you're responsible. You're, you're you know. Uh, uh, your behavior is good. You're you're making your grades like you're supposed to. You can you know comply with curfews and what have you. As uh, we start to identify our leaders. And that's really the core of what we're doing is we, we've got leaders young. These are young teenagers uh, who have shown proclivity for leadership. They've shown a responsibility and we'll put them on a little stipend. You know, it's like a hundred bucks a month, you know, hardly anything, but for them, it, it shows that somebody's investing in them. We think yeah. they've got the potential to do something different. And then that, that young man becomes responsible for, you know, six other young men and then those guys grow to the net. Right. And so that's that kind of train the trainer model uh, that we found very successful. And then, quite frankly i think the, one of the things we've we've realized that is so powerful that a lot of mentor organizations don't necessarily do and that's just problem solve you know yeah. every 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 special operator understands problem solving so whether it's I don't know, I you know, I, I don't have a driver's license to I, I can't get my application into the school because I don't have 40 bucks to wh- whatever problem these kids have. Because, you know, our operators on the ground, if you will, our cadre, they have this network that they develop organically. They're able to reach out and connect folks with the right solution, whether it's to the schools or through the uh, you know local business. And we've got an incredible amount of partners uh people that work with us. Obviously, law enforcement's huge for us. You know, the, the police athletic leagues, we've got correctional officers that work with us, teachers, students, but businesses, you know, we've got gold star parents and uh, retired people and, and everybody kind of coming together to to help the cause, if you will. Uh, and the, the power of it is really, really amazing when you see the talent that is there. And, and I'll, I'll reflect just for a second on my time, uh, in the army, back in the Pentagon, when I was working with the chief of staff of the army, it was, you know, the army, obviously we pay attention to our demographics and, and we want to reflect America. And, uh, this, this guy was briefing the the chief and, uh, And he was saying how that they had we have a huge gap in African-American males in the military. Like a lot of African-American women come in. They do very well. You know, our our numbers are looking good, but we're having trouble with males. And the guy that was briefing him and he was a civilian, he was saying uh, because in the culture uh, in those communities, a lot of the times if a kid starts showing uh, success, he gets ostracized by his peers. And so what we're doing at the Green Beret is we see the talent that that the nation needs, right? We don't have enough special operator types, but I know there's some down in in these concentrate these disenfranchised communities, these neighborhoods, yeah. right? We don't have enough computer scientists, but I know there's some down in there. We don't have enough doctors, whatever, right? And so we're losing as a country, and this is kind of the cold strategic view and talk about strategy, we simply need more talent coming out of our Population and and know that there's talent in a lot of these uh, neighborhoods. Where just to be honest with you, from my perspective, kids have no hope. They don't have. It's unrealistic to think the American dream is possible. You know, if you just work hard, you're going to get ahead. if, if you say that, you don't really appreciate the environment that these children are born into and growing up in. Right. Uh, and so unless an organization like the Green Beret Project, and, and there's many other, you know, mentor organizations out there trying to help, uh, kids aren't going to make it. They're going to end up in prison. And, uh, you know, the, the recidivism rate, at least in the area we're working with, is like 85%, right? So kid, kid goes, to, goes to juvenile hall, well, he, it's almost assured he's going to end up as a lifetime criminal. Right. right. So what we try to do uh, and what we're really starting to focus on in Wilmington and, and we, the beauty of the Green Beret project is it's all organic. Right. I, so I'm the executive director, I'm the executive director, because my buddy was having dinner with me. And he said, Hey, can you help me out? And I said, sure. What do you want me to do? And he said, well, I want you to run the junk. You know, I want right. you to be executive director. So, you know, I'm a thousand miles away from not that far, but you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near the guys that are actually doing it. So I, I do all the administrative kind of stuff, if you will. But the power of it is the Green Beret project is very organic. So our guys that were in Dover looked at what they needed, and they began focusing on middle school kids, got into the schools. They started a uh, – a, uh, like a community center we got a hold of inside of these uh, public housing areas. Huge, huge success, making a big difference. Wilmington, uh, Delaware, which most folks probably don't realize, but it's the most violent city in America – Proportionally, You know, it's obviously very, not a very big city, but uh, very, very violent, huge gang problem they have there. And uh, so what we've started dialing in on is uh, the kids who have already been in the system, because most of the murders that are occurring are you can kind of you have a pretty good idea of the profile. And if a kid has been in juvenile hall, uh, he is got a high likelihood of ending up, uh, you know, offending at a higher level. And so we're really starting to reach those kids to put them onto a different path. And, and, you know, through our network and contacts, we're getting guys vocational training and getting them out and getting them jobs to where they can be, you know, productive citizens. Uh, so all that to say we ended up transitioning to Savannah and it looks completely different. And, and, you know, how that happens, you know, how do you go from Delaware to Georgia? Um, a guy heard what we were doing up there, went up and checked it out, uh, uh what Justin and the guys were doing. He's like, man, I need that in Savannah. So he's he's now in Savannah, partnered with another nonprofit and he's doing leadership training uh just like just like we we do for these kids. And uh you know, so it's uh very organically grown and, and when I tell people uh the Green Beret Project is like uh, it's not like a McDonald's franchise, right? It doesn't look the same wherever you are in the country. It's more like Chinese food, right? You can get Chinese anywhere in America, John it ain't going to be the same restaurant, but you kind of generally know what you're going to get, and that's uh, that's kind of how we are with the Green Beret Project. And and obviously we're a we're a nonprofit, been established for uh, almost a year now. Uh, I just came on in uh, January, so you know still kind of getting pieces in place and what have you. Uh, but you know one obviously if anybody wants to Google the Green Beret Project, we're we're always needing donations, and, and quite frankly for not a lot of money. A month, you can make huge differences in, in kids' lives. Uh, and then we're always looking for volunteers. And, and the big one is, if anybody's out there uh, that's in a community that is needs assistance, and, and you want to kind of start a start a Green Beret uh, wing, if you will, or a club, uh, certainly contact us because we've got a pretty broad network. But a lot of times, it's all about finding the right guy. And, you know, the right guy is a soft like and I'm saying guy, guy or girl, because we do we do a lot of work with uh, young women as well. Uh, it's the mentality that we're looking for. And the final piece I'll, I'll say on this, John, is our connection to the veterans have been very powerful. And this is something that we didn't realize at all when we were going through it, but are uh, or, or really getting it going. Uh, but what we've had is a lot of veterans that were struggling, right? They've transitioned out, they've got some PTSD, they've been, you know, some of them were physically tuned up. Uh, They've come down and they've worked with our kids for, you know, periods of time. And it's made such a huge difference for them because, you know, they're back around, they're mates, they're, you know, got a good purpose in life, they're helping serve somebody else and making a difference in the community. Uh, And so, you know, particularly we veterans out there that may want to get involved and may want to uh, start a program like this, uh, I think it's, you know, one, desperately needed by the nation. Our country absolutely needs to uh, heal and to, to bring the talent up out of a lot of these disenfranchised neighborhoods. Uh, and I think it's good for our veterans. I think it gives you a great sense of purpose. You're serving something higher than yourself and you're making a huge difference. Applying, quite frankly, applying a lot of the skills that you uh, and, and characteristics and attributes that you developed in the military into a uh, into a different field. It's uh, very, very positive for folks.
2: Yeah. And I think the the whole concept of it is, um, you know, it's spot on and I think it's effective and it's effective because we know it works because it's worked in the past. And, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, a lot of the things you were talking about with some of these neighborhoods is spot on. Um, you know, I'm born and raised in New York city and, um, yeah. you know, just, just this year alone, I, I, up in the Bronx, I think murders are up like 70% or something like that. And, um, and it's all teenagers. It's like yep. literally all teen. It's all, you know, 15 years old. This kid, uh, it was kind of made the national headlines recently. This kid was, um, you know, dragged out of a, a bodega and, and stabbed to death. Um, and and there's there a video of it. So it's not to say that his death is more, uh, you know, it means more than someone else's. Okay. But it's just that there was a video of it. So people yep. saw like the brutality of it. And um, yeah. You know, he's just 15 years old, young kid. Uh, the guys who stabbed him were part of a gang and, and they were all older. So uh, it's kind of given people energy to f- say, you know what, like we're, we're tired of this kind of thing reoccurring and, and, you know, what can we do to change? And I think uh, an organization like the Green Beret Project is, is actually perfect for that. And I think one of the things, one of the difference makers is not that, you know the the guys or the women from the Green Beret Project uh, won't be effective. I think it's the the community itself needs to yep. have the energy and the and, and the want to change. You know,
3: yeah. Which John, that's so that's a, probably the essence or one of the essence. I didn't even talk to you about. You know, when we send a, somebody in, <clears throat> it's the same thing our Green Berets do when they go to the Philippines. Right? It's all by through and with. Right. We're activating the local community. We're helping them. Uh, solve their own problems, if you know what I mean, and and that's huge for us. I and mean, we couldn't we couldn't do anything without the the local folks that live there day to day, you know, run businesses there every day, police the streets every day, trying to raise kids every single day. Uh, and that's really the essence of it. Is and you're exactly right. The, the problem really has to be solved uh, at the local level. But but quite frankly, a lot of times the communities can't. They can't crack the nut. They can't figure out how to get to to uh, break the cycle because the cycle to school to prison. Man, it's it's endless. It is. It is is endless. It's very sad. And so we're we're, you know, making 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 a difference one kid at a time, one neighborhood at a time, uh, making changes. And and we've seen some very positive results in our short time so far. And uh, we we look forward to uh, continuing to move forward.
2: And if anyone is interested in, in helping out or potentially getting involved, uh, where's a good place where they can get information or, or whatever?
3: Yeah, you can uh, you could literally just Google the Green Beret Project, and uh, you know we're at greenberetproject.com. com. Uh, you can certainly send me an email, uh, Scott Kelly at greenberetproject.org, org org at the end. And uh, you know, John, I'll have make sure you have my information. But uh, yeah, and and the other piece, uh, I'll ask guys is, is we're also always, uh, we, we work with, uh, across stovepipes. So we connect with all kinds of different organizations, all kinds of different nonprofits, all kinds of different, uh, you know, government sector folks, uh, because we're, you know, like the quiet professionals of the green berets, we're just trying to help the cause. You know, we're not overly concerned or concerned at all about, uh, about kind of getting credit. So we do a lot. So if bottom line, if anybody's out there thinking, Hey, you know, I know this organization that does whatever you know computer training for for uh poor or inner city youth connect us please we we're always bringing in the different folks whether it's you know stem people or health and nutritious folk nutrition folks to uh, help our kids get an edge on that you know uh, just to be honest with you some of the best success or great partners we've had are uh, crossfit gyms i yeah. mean it Something as simple as that, we'll bring our kids in, they'll do CrossFit. You, you're changing a kid's life, right? He's now thinking in terms of a healthy manner. He's now wanting to eat better. He's now yeah. wanting to better sleep. I mean, you, know, you, you can put them on a different projection uh, or trajectory for their life with relatively simple stuff uh, just by, you know, showing you care for them, giving them a little bit of love and then giving them a different picture from the, the neighborhood that's right around them and the, some right. of the bad influences they, they, they can experience.
2: Right. Well, you know, people, people don't know what they don't know. And, um, just introducing something different could change everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just hearing everything you're talking about and, and, you know, being a a New York City native, um, it, it just, it, it could be so, it could make such a difference, you know, and, and, uh, these these guys who who killed this fifteen year old, I think the oldest one was maybe twenty four, but you know the one of them was nineteen, yep. and the other one was twenty two, whatever. Sixteen.
3: Poor um, John, most dangerous uh, crowd.
2: Yeah, and um, you know everybody's obviously uh, angry at at these these guys yeah. for for killing this kid, but there was a uh, there's one a rapper he's from the Bronx, and and one thing he said about it, and I, I thought it was really an interesting take, is that we failed not only the kid who was murdered, but we failed the kids who killed him because
3: you're on it, John. Yeah.
2: Because they're, you know, they're, they're thinking that it's okay to behave like that. And it's not. And, and they're, yeah. you know, now their life is over because, you know, they're going to okay. spend the majority of their life in prison. And um, great
3: point, John. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I talked to when I'm talking to different audiences about this, one of the things I point to them is I say, uh, behaviors and mannerisms, and, uh, cultural factors that make these kids survive in their neighborhood. I mean, literally survive in their neighborhood makes them unhirable in a mainstream job. Yep. You know, it's terrible. It's, it's terrible, but they, they have to be that way. I mean, and you, know, of course we're, we're so down in the, in the, uh, community yeah. that we understand, you know, from first street to second street and third street and who, who can go where. You know, because some of our kids can't go certain places because they're not from that neighborhood.
2: Right.
3: You know, and and it's uh and what your point is exactly right. You know, I mean, we we kind of failed those kids 10 years ago. If that kid's 24, we probably failed him back when he was 14. Right. Yeah. So that's that's who we're really trying to get after. To uh, So we take two approaches. One is prevention. Right. If we can get it, if we can get a young kid, uh, eight to 10, eight to 14 years old before they've had any issues and, and show them a different way, give them a give them a different uh, picture on life. And then we also do intervention. And that's uh, we've had some great success too. you know, kid comes out of uh Ferris—that's that's their juvenile detention facility. Uh, after a year, we we take him in our arms. We meet him while he's incarcerated. We build a relationship with him. Uh, when he comes out, he comes in and he's a partner with the Greenberry Project. We show him something different and uh, start giving him some opportunities to to take his life in a different direction than than what the, the, the path it was already on.
2: Yeah, it, it sounds like an, an amazing thing you guys are doing, and um, you know, I look forward to um. Keeping up with what the Greenberry Project got going on, uh, as you know, like I said, just being a resident of New York City and, and seeing uh, you down know, here. some of these things that took place not too far from where I grew up, um, you know, it, and it just reminds me of, uh, you know, some of the kids that I've seen just kind of stray and, and uh, you know, go down the wrong path and just kind of ruin themselves um, without just like knowing, you know, you, like I said, you don't know, what you don't know. so. Uh, I think what you guys are doing is amazing. And, um, you know, it's July 4th. And I, I know you have like family over, so I really appreciate you, uh, you know, stepping out to do this. And um, I want to thank you for your service as well.
3: Oh, thanks, John. I appreciate what you're doing. You are you know, I vetted your podcast a little bit, as I, as I mentioned to you. Too, and I uh, really appreciate you giving various veterans a platform to uh, kind of talk about some different things. And I think you do a great job with it. So I appreciate it very much. John. Thank you.